Now the thousand years may be understood in two ways, so far as it occurs to me, either because these things happen in the sixth thousand of years or sixth millennium, the latter part of which is now passing, as if during the sixth day, which is to be followed by a Sabbath, which has no evening, the endless rest of the saints, so that speaking of a part under the name of the whole, he calls the last part of the millennium, the part that is which had yet to expire before the end of the world, a thousand years. Or he used the thousand years as an equivalent for the whole duration of this world, employing the number of perfection to mark the fullness of time. For a thousand is the cube of ten. St. Augustine, City of God. You're listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi, here today with David Apple to continue our discussion of the book of Revelation. David, how are you doing? Doing great, Zelwyn. It's good to be with you in the new year, 2023. Looking forward to it. The year of our Lord. Yes. So how was your Christmas va- Christmas break? How did that all go for you? Oh, it went well. We, um, we had a little bit of snow here. Well, quite a bit of snow, actually. Some really cold weather, a little bit of ice um, right before Christmas. So that made the parking lot on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day kind of a mess. Uh, we don't have, you know, it's not typical to get a lot of snow. So we don't have like a, um, you know, a plowing contract. And most most people down here, I don't know who plows your church parking lot, Zelwyn. Do you have members or do you have a, a service have, that does it? There's members that come by and do yep. it. So. so a lot of a lot of your folks probably have the, um, you know, the plow on the front of the truck. We don't have too many like that down here. So it was kind of just, uh, you know, ice shrink and uh, skate your way into church. But even that being the case, uh, by by the time it was Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, people were ready to get out, and uh, we had a good we had a good Christmas. Good, good, glad to hear it. I know that on Christmas Day for us in particular, the weather was, for the lack of a better way of putting it, windy, and mm-hmm. uh, it it caused something of a, I guess a, you could call it a blizzard. But it was mostly in the afternoon. We were still able to have a Christmas morning service uh, and get that all through. But then again, you know, it was kind of slipping and sliding too. But once the afternoon hit, it was, you know, there was no visibility left. The snow was blowing everywhere. So it was it was an interesting Christmas weekend, but things have cleared up now. And it's a nice crisp day this morning when we're recording yep. this. And it's it's just, I think it's shaping up to be a lovely day. Remind me again, are you are you typically a one Sunday service church congregation? Well, I, I have two churches, but one at each, yeah. Yeah. So, so did you do one at, you did one at each? Yep, yep. The Christmas morning was able, it was clear enough I was able to get out and yep. be able to do the services, so. We, did, we typically have two, you know, I have an 8 o'clock and a 1045, but we just did one service on Christmas Day, and uh, it makes me wish that we had a bigger sanctuary. The reason we have two is because we can't all fit uh, into one, but when you can pack everybody into one service and uh, you get people who don't typically worship together, singing together, it's uh, it was quite powerful, especially, you know, the the great hymns that everybody wants to belt out, O Come All Ye Faithful, Now Sing We Now Rejoice, good stuff. That is, that's great. We sometimes will get that with our special services, like on Good Friday, for example. You do you do them together when when, the, when we do them together. But yeah, yeah it, it is what it is. No, it is. It's nice when the the whole church can gather together. Certainly. Speaking of the whole church gathering, though, let's, let's 
dip into Revelation, shall we? Sure, yeah, we'll get right into it here. <laughs> so we're continuing our discussion, and we're, and we're moving into chapter 20, which, of course, is... Very obscure. Very obscure. The chapter that everybody wants to talk about and to know what it means. And we'll have to probably spend a lot of time, you know, talking about all the little details. But can you lead us into the chapter? You know, where have we come from? Where are we going? That sort of thing. How does chapter 20 relate to the rest of Revelation? Yeah, I think it's good to notice uh, structural markers in the book of Revelation, um, because what one of the things that we've been trying to, that I think we've consistently said, there's a lot of things, you know, if you if we've been doing this uh, series, what, over two years now? So we've probably, in some places, we've probably um, changed our opinions on things as we've gone along. Uh, right. But one of the things I think that we've consistently tried to say, Zelwyn, is that the book of Revelation is, you know, one big vision, one revelation, and that, you know, I'm I'm familiar with the idea that it's cyclical, you know, almost like John is seeing the whole history of, uh, you know, the time from Christ to Judgment Day over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, d- I don't think that actually does justice to the book. I think a better way to view it is that everything that's happened up till now in the book of Revelation has been first century kind of stuff. And I know that there are places where it sounds like the end of the, he's describing the end of the world. He's describing, you know, this huge um, judgment and these huge plagues that are happening and hailstorms and all that stuff. Um, but, but one of the things that I've tried to do as we've gone along here is at least give you a way to understand that in light of the first century, because I, I want to take seriously what he says, at the, what Jesus says, I will show you things that are about to happen. And so in the book of Revelation, if we read it as things that were within the life of the apostle, within the, the time of, of John's writing, what we have up till chapter 20 is uh, kind of the, the things that have happened right around the year 70 AD. And so now in chapter 20, it's going to open up to, okay, what comes next? And so this really is where I, in my understanding of the book of Revelation, the book opens up beyond just that first century and is now going to look ahead. There's a, a revelation of what is to come. And it's, it's very brief, really, to be honest with you. It's um, certainly a, a chapter that intrigues people because it talks about the millennium and there's so many, you know, so much hangs on what you say about the millennium in you know, eschatological debates these days. But what I would say is this part of the book, chapter 20, comes at the culmination of, you know, the destruction of the whore of Babylon, the battle uh, between the the beast and Christ riding out on his horse. So we've seen the, the whore of Babylon fall. We've seen the beast be destroyed and now the devil himself. So those three enemies that came up back in chapter 12, um, the dragon, his beasts, those things are now being conquered in reverse order. So the first one to fall is the whore of Babylon. And I would take that, I would equate that with the land beast, so to speak, then the sea beast, Rome, and then now, okay, what do we do about Satan himself? And, and how does this open up then into the mission of the church? Sure. And I mean, even even if you tend to see 
the book of Revelation more in terms of something that is happening not just in the first century, like I tend to do. I mean, I certainly appreciate, you know, everything that 70 AD brings into the discussion, and I think that's worth considering. But if even if you do see it as something that continues and like even repeats itself throughout history, there is something about chapter 20 that, I mean, there is, it's like, it, it's looking forward, right? It's looking to yeah. what is yet to come. I mean, the, in that sense, there really is a, a still kind of a, a not yetness to this, especially because when we get into the final defeat of Satan and the judgment on, you know, before the white throne and all of that, these are things that are obviously a once for all kind of thing. Yeah, and you can. Yeah, I mean, even in the um, when you when you look at the the numbers that we've seen in the Book of Revelation so far, especially the time notices, I think the first one came up in in one of the letters to one of the churches. You know, you're going to face persecution for ten days, okay, a short mm-hmm. time, and then you have references to things like forty two months, okay, so that's mm-hmm. three and a half years, um, one thousand two hundred sixty days, again, three and a half years time, times, and half a time. Again, that's that's meant to symbolize or signify a short time, three and a half. You know, it's like a half of a seven, right? So it's it's an incomplete. But now John's going to use the number millennium, a thousand years. And so we're we're talking about, okay, we'll we'll get into the question of literal versus figurative in a minute here, but we're talking about something that is obviously a long time. Even right. if it if it's a literal thousand years, well, that's a lot longer than any of the other time references John has mentioned so far. So certainly, this chapter opens up beyond just things that are about to happen to open the horizons on things that are going to continue to happen. Right. Although it is worth pointing out, since we're kind of starting the discussion already, the fact that the thousand years is a defined period is something that we cannot ignore either, right? There is a, there's a beginning to it. You know, we'll discuss yeah. when we might think that beginning is, but there's also a clear end. Yeah. So whatever the thousand years is, it cannot be, you know, the world without end, you know, the, the, the kingdom to come kind of a thing. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point to make. It, it has a beginning and a termination. It's not mm-hmm. the eternal state. The eternal right. state is beyond the millennium. Um, And I I would just mention here, too, if you're looking for kind of structural markers in the book of in the book of the Revelation, there's these four times where John is told, I will show you, I will show you, I will show you. Um, And this so chapter 20 comes at the end of the third, I will show you. And that began back in in chapter 17. So I will show you the whore of Babylon. And that's chapter 17. Then the horse fall is chapter 18. Then the battle with the beast is chapter 19. And now, once those things have been conquered, now there's time for the millennium to begin. And everything that is encompassed in the millennium doesn't begin until those other things fall. So again, I, I don't see this as John, you know, kind of starting over again. And saying, mm-hmm. okay, now let's go back to the very beginning. I think there is a progression through the book of a continued story, a continued revelation. And this comes at the end of the fight with the whore and with the beast. Now comes the millennium. Sure, sure. Well, we should probably talk about the, the basic structure of the chapter 
so that we can really get into a discussion of what it says, you know, to really get into to delve into what everybody wants to talk about here. So how would you divide chapter 20 and why is that significant? Yeah, I, I would say there's four, there's three visions in chapter 20. So in, in the whole book of Revelation, there's if you have the big picture, there's these four, these four things that John has shown. Chapter 20 comes at the end of the third of those showings. I will show you the whore of Babylon. Uh, but now in chapter 20, if you just look for, then I saw, you know, that's kind of the marker. Then I saw in verse one, then I saw in verse four. And then uh, in verse 11, you get that again, then I saw. So I I would take this as three visions. And then between verses 11 and 15, there's a couple more uses of that. Then I saw, then I saw. And I, but, but the context seems to me clear that that's all part of the same, that's contained in the one vision. Okay. So uh, first vision is verses one through three. And that's the vision of an angel coming down and binding Satan. Okay. Then verses four through 10 describes the, the reign of the martyrs and the loosing out of Satan and his final defeat. And then verse, verses 11 through 15, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to call that the final, that's the final judgment. That's judgment day. Some people would, I think if you've ever talked with a dispensationalist, um, they'll, they'll use the term, the great white throne judgment. Um, that comes as the third of these visions in chapter 20. Why are you talking to dispensationalists, though, David? <laughs> well, I, I live in Kentucky, so they're kind oh, of hard fair. to avoid. Fair. I'll give you that. And besides, they're interesting, you know. <laughs> you never know what the, they're going to say. <laughs> yeah, the, the amillennialists are kind of boring. You know, the pre-mill uh, guys, they're they're exciting. <laughs> well, very good. Okay, so with that division in mind then uh, we want to turn our attention in the last part of this first segment to that first segment right to verses one through three in chapter 20 and in this segment we have i mean a couple of very clear things happening which of course is the binding of satan and also the beginning of the thousand year period Mm -hmm. actually basically the the whole of the thousand year period and honestly, this is a lot of where the debate centers, right, is in these three verses. You know, what does this mean or whatever? But let's start with Satan himself, okay? We have the angel coming down, the, having the key to the bottomless pit, the, uh, the pit being where the demons come from, you know, the kind of their, their abode, if you will. Yeah. And uh, a great chain with which to bind Satan. So, what exactly is is happening here? You know, what is the angel doing? Or maybe maybe the better question to start with is, who is this angel? Because that's also a point of debate, right? Yeah, the, I mean, throughout the book, there's always you know there's these various angels. Uh, sometimes the referent is to the pastors of churches, right? Um, mm-hmm. Think back to the letters that John uh, is told to to transcribe. They're sent to the angels of the churches, and we take that as the pastors. In other cases, the angels are, you know, you know, just like it says, they're legitimate angels. There are some people who take some of the angels as, like one of the angels, I believe, as Christ himself. I've read comment, commentators commenters here who would take this angel as the, the angel of Jesus as a reference to the Holy Spirit. 
so there's there is lots of debate about who exactly the angel is. Um, certainly, because he comes down and has this authority over Satan, I think we would take this as more than just a uh, you know a pastor of a local congregation. And so, seeing this angel as someone who comes with the authority of Christ, whether it's Christ himself or uh, a broader use of that term angel to maybe encompass the um, the activity of the Holy Spirit. I think it's plausible to take it that way. Or something like we saw back in chapter 12 with Michael, an archangel of some sort. But something more than a human figure, I think, is is implied here. You don't have the keys over Satan? Is that what you're saying? Well, we... We'll get into how we use the key, how the keys continue to be used, but at least the description here of an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, seizing the dragon, the ancient serpent. I think that uh, calls for more than the local pastor binding uh, and loosing sins in heaven. Well, maybe in Kentucky, but <laughs> up here in North Dakota, we are doing things, great things in the spirit. No, I'm Well, I'm okay, joking, so if, but... if you want to go that way, Zelwyn, <laughs> then I think, okay, take take the key. Well, let's, let's not get into that just yet, because we'll talk about church discipline and what that has to do with, what that has to do with the millennium in a minute. Right? Sure, sure. Well, but on a more serious note here, I mean, we do have this angel and I'm I'm willing to say that he's, you know, just an angel, someone designated by God. You could even say an archangel. It's just for the sake of argument, let's call him an archangel. But he's been given this key to the bottomless pit, showing at least that, you know, God has the authority over the pit. You know, the pit is not, you know, uh, kind of in hostility to God and there's nothing he can do about it. You know, God is the one still dictating the, 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 the flow of mm-hmm. events here. And with this key and with this great chain, uh, the devil himself is bound so that he is not able to do what he had been doing before, especially when we have the deceiving of the nations until the thousand years are ended. So, I mean, the, the fact that Satan is being bound here is significant, if only because, you know, there's something about what he was doing before that he's not able to do now. And I think that is a great indicator. I mean, we should really keep that in mind when we're talking about the thousand years, right? Yeah, the, the, before this, there had been a reference to the abyss, uh, but the abyss was open. So I think it was back in, oh gosh, I can't remember the chapter number now. But um, remember before, there were things coming up out of the abyss. You know, there were the locust scorpions came up out of the abyss now. So, so that there was like a highway open between the abyss and earth and things were coming out of the abyss onto the earth. Now with everything that's transpired in the book, again, this is why I don't see it as just purely a a cyclical thing. Everything that has happened has led to this progress where now the abyss is closed it's sealed over. Satan is suppressed there. He's not completely inactive. And we'll talk about that maybe after the break would be good. Um, But he is put down into the pit. The pit is sealed up. You know, in a lot of ways, this is reminiscent of what happens to Jesus, right? Jesus is seized. He's taken to the cross. He's thrown into 
you know, into the grave, it's sealed over, he breaks out. But the devil is, uh, you know, he's a, a bad imitator. And so what happens to him uh, is that he actually is sealed up and he can't get out until he's released, you know. Um, but again, that doesn't happen of his own accord. That is, he's released in order to be finally destroyed. And we'll talk about that more when we get back after the break, right after this. Spoken. I'm Zell and Heidi here with David Appold, continuing our discussion of the book of Revelation. So, in the previous section, David, we had just we're starting to talk about the binding of Satan in the first section of chapter 20. But now we need to actually talk about, you know, what exactly that means. You know, what does it mean for Satan to be bound? What is he being prevented from doing? You know, what it, and I, I know this is all contingent on how you view the thousand years. But let's just start the discussion. You know, what does the actual binding mean? Yeah, I mean, I think there. So, so maybe if if we have two possibilities in our minds that can help us clarify, either he is completely inactive. That would be one possibility here, right? Um, so the angel comes down, throws him in the pit. He's chained up. It's all sealed over. He has no activity. He has no force on earth at all. Or you could take this as there is he is still active in some way, but he is restrained from doing what he previously had done. And the text itself makes reference to the specific activity of the devil that is bound up here when it says, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So it's especially this this activity of Satan as the deceiver of the whole world, who's held the world in lies, who's held the world in, you know, under that kind of darkness. That's the way that I take it. It doesn't mean that there is no satanic activity during the millennium, but that he is suppressed. And what he had been able to do before, he's no longer able to do, which is to deceive the whole world. Whole nations are no longer under his under his deceit. Does that make sense? It does. Um, and I'm I'm thinking also about what we've said before, like in the the episode on territorial spirits, and you know that that idea of you know what is the spirit ruling over the nation or whatever. Would you say then that the the binding of Satan here is that he can no longer hold out against uh, 
uh, against the the coming of of God. I mean that sort of thing. Like holding a nation in deception is one thing, but like holding them in the way that he he did in antiquity, for example, would be another. Right. 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 And, and I think, you know, think of some of the things that Jesus himself said, um, now is the ruler of this world cast out, right, right before he goes to the cross. So that didn't mean that, you know, the devil is completely non-existent after the death and resurrection of our Lord. But it did mean that there was a, there was a transition, there was a, a big change that happened after mm-hmm. that point, right? Um, and I take this similarly, you know, now um, the strong man has been bound by the stronger one, and mm-hmm. the stronger man, Christ, is beginning to plunder the goods of the strong man, the devil. But he's not, it doesn't mean that the church will not face some kind of satanic attack. It, it doesn't mean that there's, you know, in the millennium, it is just all peace all the time. Um, it just means that what previously had been the MO of the devil to deceive whole nations no longer is going to be the case, that the word of Christ, the word of truth, the light of the gospel is going to at least here begin to go out into the whole world and the devil will not be able to stand against it. Okay, but just so that we are clear in what we're saying here, at least in our thinking, uh, we also said in the previous segment that the angel who binds him is an angel, right? But we, but if you're referring back to what Jesus says, you know, the stronger man binding the strong man, Christ himself doing that, is there a conflict between those two statements? I don't think so because of, um, you know, things, uh, what, what term should we use here? Who, well, put it this way, who's at work in the life of the church? Is it Jesus or is it the Holy Spirit? Both. Right? It's, it's both, right? And so the, the word and the spirit are at work in the world. Um, you know, Jesus binding the strong man doesn't rule out the, the fact that he authorizes his apostles to go out and to evangelize the whole world. He works through them, right? And so in this, I think in a similar way, you can see here the angel coming down from heaven uh, is not coming on his own authority. He doesn't come with his own power and might, um, but he's authorized by Jesus, similar to maybe the way that we talk about Michael casting the devil out of heaven. How does he conquer the devil? Well, it's through the blood of the lamb, the testimony that he conquers. So it's not because of something apart from Christ, but Christ's victory on the cross and in the resurrection, now sending the spirit now authorizing the apostles, now at work in the church. These things are not opposed to each other, but they're all, what's the right term here to use, Zelwyn? They're concurrent. They're working together. Right, right. Well, I mean, we we do this too, when if we send someone to do something on our behalf, you know, we can honestly say that we we've done it, right? Right. Even if we weren't the ones who actually physically, like in that moment, did it, we still authorized it to happen, and that's why it happened kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we do this, too, in our language. I'm just, again, I'm just trying to make sure that we understand this clearly. Yeah, no, it's very helpful because, you know, think back to other keys, right? This binding certainly brings to mind the use of a key. And so at the very beginning of Revelation, it was Jesus who said, I hold in my hand the key to death and hell, you know, death and Hades. And so now that you know, to bind up the abyss, to seal it over 
Well, you would presumably have to have the key to be able to do that. Well, who had the key? It was Jesus in the beginning, but now it's an angel. So did the angel take the key? You know, did he steal the keys from Jesus? You know, in, in the first segment, you, you know, kind of jokingly put it this way, but you're right that the ministers of the church, the angels of the congregations, we do use the keys that Christ has entrusted to us. And by doing so, what this angel does in John's revelation continues to happen in the life of the church. The devil is bound up in the abyss. He's, he's held down. Sure, sure. Well, then I guess that leads to the next question. I mean, if we're going to identify the binding of Satan with his inability to deceive in the way that he has before, does that mean then that the binding is in progress? Like, are we, are we living in the time when Satan is bound or is the binding of Satan something still yet to come so that, so that the binding will signal the, the beginning of something new? Mm-hmm. You know, where, when exactly is Satan bound so that he's no longer able to deceive? Yeah. Are you asking when does the millennium begin? Well, it's because kind of the same question. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what's <laughs> right. So it says that this happens at the beginning of the millennium. Right. At the beginning of a thousand years, he's the devil will be bound for a thousand years, and if you, if your question is when does that start, mm-hmm. you know all these questions kind of swirl together. When does the thousand years begin? Is it a literal thousand years or is it a figurative thousand years? The way that I that I take it here, you know, we read from Saint Augustine at the beginning of the episode, and uh, I think most of our listeners are probably Lutheran pastors uh, or Lutheran laymen. And so they're they're going to guess where we're going to go with this, uh, which is to take the thousand years as the time of the the church, right? So the devil is bound during the the time in which the gospel is proclaimed through the whole world, the activity of the church, and he won't be unbound until the the end. Okay. Now again, this is why we we say it doesn't mean the binding of the devil doesn't mean he is completely inactive. Because obviously, right, since the beginning of the church, uh, there have been satanic, there has been satan- continued satanic activity in the world. But his power is limited. His, the deceit that he was able to have before Christ and before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is no longer the case. Okay. How then do we connect up the idea that chapter 20 is something that is still, how do you want to say? If, ongoing? If, well, I mean, not so much ongoing. How, well, how do, we, how do we connect that with what we said before, where we said that, you know, there's a progression in the book of Revelation? Because if we, if we want to say, strictly speaking, the binding of Satan is the time of the church, that sounds an awful, like, awful lot like re- recapitulation, like we're just going over the same period again. You know, how do we, how do we make, the, make it clear that there is still a progression from what has happened before? Yeah, they, and that's where um, seeing the, the significance of the year 70 and the significance of the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple, which then becomes the impetus for the worldwide mission. Now, certainly the Apostle Paul was already engaged in, uh, you know, going out to the nations. Uh, But the activity of the church was still 
through the time of Acts 15, very much centered in Jerusalem, right? When a major decision had to be made, it was, okay, let's all gather in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the epicenter for the mission of the church. And it's not until the temple is destroyed that that is really taken away and the worldwide mission, the, you know, the global evangelism movement (laughs) to use kind of buzzwords, but it's not until that happens, which is what, what I would say is described in chapters 18 and 19. It's not until Jerusalem falls and Rome begins to fall as the Christian church grows through the world that, you know, that the millennium begins at that point. Okay. No, I, I, I see where you're coming from. I'm just trying to just trying to hash it all out here. So yeah, I, I the other option, the, the, the other way to take it, right, Zelwyn, and maybe this, I think this is maybe more familiar to our, re, our listeners, is that the millennium began at the resurrection of Jesus, or maybe, you know, at the, at, on the day of Pentecost. Well, yeah, and absolutely, that is, that's a common way of looking at it. I guess the question that I have, and I'm kind of wrestling with right now, is that if we understand everything before this point in terms of 70, right? If you're thinking strictly in terms of Jerusalem, so that chapter 20 is the beginning of, let's say, the time we're now living in, which I think Mm -hmm. is kind of the way you're presenting it, okay? Correct. What relevance then does chapters 1 through 19 have for the Christian today? Because it would seem to be over and done. You see what I mean? well, it has the relevance of, you know, these things, the the fall of Jerusalem serves as a type for how God's judgment comes in the world, right? And the the activity of the apostles in the book of Acts, it's kind of like asking what's the what's the significance of that for the church, right? Their activity in the book of Acts and the things that John sees in the book of Revelation they serve as examples to us. They serve as types to us of what we what we would expect to happen as nations are evangelized, as nations are then subsequently um, harden themselves like Jerusalem did against the gospel. Um, it, it wouldn't surprise us to see the kinds of things that John saw in the beginning of Revelation, you know, in symbols, of course, uh, but it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise us to see those sorts of things happening throughout history, which is why, you know, you can find things in the first 20 chapters of Revelation, and you can say, this sounds an awful lot like what happened at the time of the medieval papacy. Um, this sounds an awful lot like these other events in the history of the church without it necessarily Meaning, you know, Martin Luther was the angel of chapter 14 who proclaimed the, the gospel to the whole world. So what, what exactly is the struggle that we have then with understanding chapter 20 in a future sense, right? Because there are many Christian groups who do interpret the millennium as something which is not yet in existence right? That is Mm -hmm. something which is still to come. Whether you want to take that in a historic premillennial sense, which is saying that, you know, the the millennium will begin. And then at the end of that will be the will be the judgment. You can take that in a, a dispensationalist sense, which of course says that 
the the seven year period of tribulation, however they want to define it, uh, precedes the thousand years in which Christ will then reign on an earthly kingdom. Or you could take that even in a post-millennial sense, right? That the thousand year period will begin at some point at which the, at which then we will see a, a growth in the church unlike anything that came before it, mm-hmm. right? So those are kind of the other main options out there in the world. And there are serious proponents of each of them. How do we deal with that then? Is this something that we, I mean, why do we struggle with seeing the millennium as something future rather than saying it is something which is happening right now? I think part of it is related to what we've already talked about, which is, is the devil, is the, is the activity of the devil completely suppressed in the millennium? Or is it, you know, specifically related to one element of his activity? Uh, because if, if you take the view that the binding of the devil means he is completely inactive in the world, then you look around at what's happened in the last 2000 years and you say, well, therefore the millennium hasn't started yet, right? Because we still see satanic activity in the world. And until uh, that is completely suppressed, the, no millennium, right? Um, so that's why we went at length to say, the binding of the devil does not mean total inactivity. It means specific suppression of his deception of the whole world. And of course, there were there was there were faithful, you know, Israelites before that. But by and large, the nations that are surrounding them are held under the the dominion of the devil until Pentecost comes. Right? I mean, Pentecost really is a significant event in the the life of the church, the the mission of the church doesn't get underway until the spirit is sent from above. And then it opens up and it goes, right? Sure. And I think something else that we argue against when it comes to this more purely future understanding of, of the millennium is that if we assume that, with the exception of maybe like uh, the post-millennial position, if we assume that, we have to assume that Christ is not now reigning, right? That he's not seated in authority, power, and majesty, but rather that he's waiting until the time when that kingdom will begin. And I think that, that I think, is something that we really emphasize, and for good reason, because, you know, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 28, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, seated in power and majesty. He is reigning, and all things will be put under his feet. You know, the, the kingship of Christ has already begun. And we don't want to think that it hasn't, because otherwise we might think that, oh, well, all of this is somehow out of his control or something like that. You know, there is that sense, like you say, I mean, Satan still can do things, but there is a sense in which he is being progressively crushed, right? Yeah, right. And and I think this is where, you know, whatever extremes the dispensationalists go to, and they and they do, you know, we, we are not a dispensationalist promoting podcast by any means. Um, they do at least have this sense that there has been progress, that the over the course of Revelation history, um, the history of the world, that God has been at work making his promises, keeping his promises, and the devil's activity in the world 
has been undermined and the kingdom of Christ has been growing. Now, we're not going to go to an extreme here and say it's, it's you know, the stocks are just always going to keep going up. Um, the kingdom faces all kinds of obstacles as it grows. But um, I think it is right to see in the history of, certainly in the history of the church, that there, as the gospel goes out to the nations, you know, the devil is bound and the the gospel brings with it not just spiritual good, but it brings with it progress. I do want to make one thing clear here. I think you meant uh, post-millennial when you were saying that progression sort of a thing. And there is and there is that, in that sense, we can agree with them. Because I would see dispensationalism as a eschatology of pure pessimism, in my opinion. I mean, because they, they think that everything's basically going to fail right before the end. Sure. I, I, what I meant by them is they, they at least have this sense of like, you know, um, there are these chunks of time in history and there are major moments in history where oh, things are changing. Sense. Okay. You know, that's okay. what I mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah. I would agree with you there. It's just, I don't, I don't think of them as very positive. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Kind of people. Fair enough. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. So with that, then we'll go into our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. to A Word Fitly Spoken. I am Zoan Heidi here with David Appold, continuing our discussion of the book of Revelation. So David, we've been talking quite a bit about the thousand years and all that that means and the binding of Satan like that, but I think the one thing that we haven't clarified, at least I don't think we've clarified it as much as we could, is how we are to actually understand the number itself. Mm-hmm. How should we understand a thousand? You know, is it literal? Is it figurative? If it's figurative, what does it mean? You know, what? How, how are we supposed to understand the thousand-year period? Yeah, I think we should understand it as a long time. Um, that <laughs> right? That's what a thousand years. It, whether it's literal or symbolic, it's a long time. So that much is obvious. It is a long time, and the the thousand years. You know, the taking it as literal would, when we haven't really taken anything else in the book that way, I think would suddenly introduce, suddenly our hermeneutics are off if we do that, right? So if sure. if everything else has been symbolic, the dragon, the woman, the child, you know, certainly the symbols correspond to the realities in John's revelation. It's not like, you know, he doesn't describe the devil as, you know, a gentle, you know, a gentle creature. He's a dragon and he doesn't describe Jesus as a lamb for no reason. 
uh, or as the Lion of Judah for no reason, right? The symbols correspond to the realities properly. And so here, same in the same way, the thousand years, why does he use a thousand if he's not meaning to be literally a thousand years or literalistically a thousand years? Well, it's because he wants to signify a long time. And so a long time needs a big number, you know, kind of basically. And you can get into, you know, you can go into the whole uh, a thousand is a cube of 10 and 10 is a complete number. So a thousand is a, a number of uh, cubed completion, Trinitarian completion. All, I think all those things have validity to them. But the point for us is uh, it's, a, it's a figure of a long time. And the long time, the way that, that I read it is from the time of the fall of Jerusalem to the end of um, the end of the world. Yeah, and that kind of gets back into our previous discussion. Although I will say the year 1000 AD was a wild time. <laughs> yeah, and that's, again, you, you know, why do people see the, you know, what, why is it, why has the book of Revelation been misconstrued so many times, right? Well, it's because there's been, there have been things that have happened throughout the history of the church that you could say, man, that sounds just like what it says here in Revelation. And so then you get, you know, you kind of get sucked into this timeline sort of thing of where are we in the book of Revelation and, and is it supposed to be, you know, this map or this timeline for the whole history of the church? And that's why that appeals to people, you know, why, you know, looking at the year 1000 and say, oh, that must have been when the millennium ended. Um, but then you get into all, you, you have other troubles like saying, well, now it's the year 2023. What happened? You know, did we miss? Did we miss the end? What do you have against the reformers, David? Nothing. I, I like them. <laughs> well, I only say that because that historic position, a historic view yeah. of the Book of Revelation, right. was really big at the time of the Reformation. In fact, some of the things that we still kind of half hold on to as Lutherans are products of that. You know, like this idea that Luther is the angel of of Revelation 14, for example, stuff like that. Yeah. So, And, you know, I, I mentioned that last, I, I don't know, some people will probably, you know, I don't know if they turn off the podcast when I say that I don't think that that's the case. It's not that I don't think that that angel's activity can apply to Luther and, and he can function in a way similar to the angel. I just think if you say that what John saw was Martin Luther, or, you know, was a symbol of Martin Luther, then you know, you've got 1500 years where what John is writing in the book of Revelation is not happening. And I, I think that, um, you know, for us looking back or for the people at the time of the Reformation, they, oh, yeah, this is happening right now. Um, but what about the Christians in the previous 1500 years? Were they just, you know, waiting around in chapter 10? Were they stuck at chapter 10? And now we're up to chapter, you know, 17 or, what? you know, I, I think that you get into these, you back yourself into a corner that you really can't make sense of the whole book, even if you can say this works really well in a funeral sermon. Right. <laughs> of course, this is where I get kind of snarky and say, well, if it's all 70, then what's the meaning for, you know, the, the, the subsequent yes. 15 centuries? Well, that's like saying, what's the point of the Old Testament? You know, why... <laughs> Yeah, you've got to have types, and you have to understand how these things, how history works in in repetitions, but not exact repetitions. 
I like how you're taking me seriously, but yeah, well, I have to because you you speak on behalf of of many. <laughs> so, if we're going to understand Revelation, uh, the thousand years as a figurative number for a indeterminate but long period of time during which Satan is bound so that he's no longer able to deceive in the way that he had before. What then, how then should we understand verse the end of verse 3 when it talks about the end of this thousand-year period and the release of Satan? Yeah, so when whenever we get to the end of the millennium that we're currently in, and of course we it could happen at any time, I think that that's a good thing to always remember here. There are, there's um, nothing that prevents our Lord from returning except like it says in second Peter, his own mercy, right? It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. He is not slow in keeping his promises as some count slowness, all those things. At the same time, are we close to the end or not? Um, I think when we started the podcast, we thought we were close to the end or, or when we started the series, we thought we were fairly close to the end, but now Maybe we're starting to feel like, well, we've still got some time. And, you know, God did say that he would show his steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love him. So, you know, if you give 30 years for a generation, does that seem fair, Zelwyn? Sure. You know, from the time of the Exodus, let's say roughly 1500 BC till now, you know, we're at how many, maybe a hundred generations. So we still got some we could still have a long time is my point. We could have a very long time still, or, you know, it could happen tomorrow. Um, but in any case, at the end of the millennium, it says that the devil will be loosed. And this this always causes a little bit of um, concern for people because obviously that would be a bad thing, right? If the devil's right. loosed. Uh, but he's loosed in order to for a, for something else to happen. He's not just loosed so that he can you know, have free course in the world. He's brought out of the abyss, if you want to put it this way, right? It's a divine passive. If you want to get into the grammar, God releases him in order to finally destroy him. So the the binding is not permanent for the devil. The permanent thing is being thrown into the lake of fire, which is about to happen. And in order for that to happen, he has to be brought out. Is this kind of like the uh, the restrainer in Second Thessalonians and the man of lawlessness? I mean, I know that's a different figure, and I mean that's mm-hmm. we've talked about him before. But this idea that there's a restraint in place that will persist until it's released, after which the man of lawlessness will appear, right? Yeah, you know the I, I think that's a good parallel here to see that God does restrain Satan and then he brings him out, but he doesn't bring him out to then to say, okay, we're going to go back to how things used to be, which is he's going to go around deceiving the whole world forever again. Uh, But he's brought out, he goes and he gets his army. This is what we're going to see down in verse seven and eight. He goes and he gets Gog and Magog and he comes back for a fight and he's quickly dispatched. Um, So it's the final battle. And in order for that final battle to happen, God has to loose him or he chooses to. I mean, it's possible that God could, God can do, he's free here, right? He could, he could have just said, well, now that I've got him down in the abyss, I'm going to finish him off. Uh, But he brings him out 
in order for that final battle to be public, I suppose. Yeah, and we probably won't get into that final battle until the next time we come back to Revelation. But, I mean, you do have this release in the sense that he is now able to deceive in the way that he had before. So whatever is going to happen at his release, we're going to see a a turning towards him and away from God in a way that we had not seen before. There, there is a kind of a ramping up of it, even so that it seems like, you know, antiquity is returning in, in some sense that will mark the just before the end of days. And I think and I think this is why drawing the parallel between this and the man of lawlessness is also helpful, because, of course, I see the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness, the one, the king who will do as he wills, to use the language of Daniel, the you know the the final figure in a long line of figures that who we, who will have a decept who will deceive the nations in a way that uh, had not been done before. You know, so I do think there is a sense in which we can say. The end of the thousand year period will be a amplification, it'll be a ramping up, but it's a very, very brief period of time. Correct. I think that's right. I I would not expect, based on what's written here, what John sees, the millennium is a long time. The thousand years is a long time. And when the time between the end of the millennium and, say, the final throwing of the devil into the lake of fire, there's no time given on that. It doesn't, it doesn't even use the other symbols that John has used at this point, which were, you know, brief time periods, like we mentioned before, 42 months, 1,260 days. How long will that, you know, that post-millennial pre-Lake of Fire uh, time frame Oof. last? <laughs> I, it seems like it's, it's quick in right. comparison to the millennium anyways. Right. Well, and... I think, too, with this, with the release of Satan and the gathering of the nations, which, again, we'll talk about more when we come back the next time for Revelation, even if we are seeing a ramping up of his deception in a way that, you know, we are not currently experiencing, or maybe we are, I mean, who's to say, but even if we, even if that's a ramping up of it, we don't want to think of that as a defeat, because I think that's often the way that people will, will hear this. They'll say, oh, things are going to get really, really bad right before the end. I guess that means that somehow the church is going to be defeated. Not at all. Because as you pointed out here, the release of Satan is not him making a jailbreak and getting out and doing what he did before. The release of Satan is something that God allows to happen. He causes it to happen so that Satan will be utterly defeated in the end. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, this, I, I came across this, um, this wasn't my own insight, but I think I was reading um, whose commentary? Peter Lightheart's commentary on Revelation. He, he says that um, what happens with the devil in Revelation is kind of like a sick parody of the resurrection. So Jesus is seized, bound, uh, you know, imprisoned in the grave, so to speak, and he breaks out he rises, ascends on high, and his kingdom advances, right? Now think of what happens with the devil. He's see, Since we've seen him in chapter 12, he raised up his beasts, but ever since then, the, traje- the trajectory is downward. 
and he's seized, bound, suppressed. Then he's released in sort of a, you know, a parody of the resurrection. But instead of ascending to authority and power, he goes and gets an army. And instead of them, you know, going through the whole world, he is going to be defeated here. So it's a it's a sick parody of the lamb and his kingdom with the dragon and his kingdom. I like it. I like it. I think that'll preach. <laughs> well, if if only because if we see the release of Satan as a kind of anti-resurrection, mm-hmm. right? He's coming up out of the pit or whatever. Just I suppose as you could say as Jesus came up out of the pit, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> uh, but the the point being that even if that happens, Satan is is not there by being raised to all authority and power. He has a, a mock authority, which is then quickly crushed. Yes. And and I think, again, we, we want to focus on what is happening there and, and think that that's a reason for fear, but it really isn't. Because no matter how powerful Satan seems to be, no matter how much the world will wonder at him, the, the fact is, is he's already, already defeated. I mean, he's going out defeated. <laughs> He lost it even before he left the pit. Right. right. The the eschatology of the New Testament, we've said this many times, is eschatology of hope or eschatology of victory. That doesn't mean that it's completely, there. that there are no obstacles to be faced, no battles to be fought, um, no persecutions to endure. It just means that as those things are faced and as those things are endured, we don't endure them, you know, black-pilled and despairing and thinking this it's all for naught. We endure them knowing that the martyrs will be vindicated, that they have been vindicated, and that those who suffer persecution will not be forgotten, will not be lost. It's not a um, it's not a lost cause. You're not fighting some useless battle that doesn't have anything to do with the ultimate victory of the war, right? Every battle that the Christian fights is part of the the lamb's war on Satan and the victory will be the victory will be shared by all those who uh, whose names are written in the book of life as it's going to say later in the chapter I mean is is not the cross a victory you know is not Jesus triumphing over the devil you know a victory I mean and how does that happen it happens through his death through his suffering and we as those who are washed in the blood of the lamb will follow in his footsteps. You know, a servant is not above his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. But if Christ is victorious through such suffering, you know, if he is glorified through such suffering, so will we. So yes, Satan is going to do his parody resurrection or whatever at the end, but he's, but that's all he has. He has nothing to look forward to. We who suffer can look forward to glory. And I think that sets us up nicely, Zelwyn, for for where we want to go with this, which is to see, okay, we've just been doing these first three verses for good reason, because there's lots of questions about the millennium and and when does that start? When does it end? You know, how long does it last? Uh, But what John spends a little more time on is what comes next, which is the describing the what else happens during the millennium. So you have this note about at the end of the millennium, the devil will be released. That doesn't get picked up then again until verse seven. 
But in verses four through six, you hear a description of what's what else is happening during the millennium. Okay, the devil is, you know, his deceptions are suppressed. And now in some way, the, the martyrs rule. And we'll, I think we want to spend some time just thinking through how does martyrdom, and this came up in what you were saying, because it's through the cross of Jesus that the victory is won. So how is it that martyrdom actually advances the gospel? How can martyrdom be a victory when it looks like you've lost everything, right? Your life is taken from you. And we can, we can spend a good, a good portion of our next, you know, our next episode thinking through and talking through um, the specifics of how martyrdom, uh, you know, we can look at it historically. How did martyrdom actually conquer Rome, the Roman empire? But we can also then talk more presently too, in what way does the, the martyr, the little martyrdom um, that we are all called to, how does that actually prove to be um, you know, victorious. Very good. Well, David, any final thoughts before we close out for today? I think we've, you know, we've only spent our time here on those first three verses, but we'll, we'll come back. I don't know when we'll do the next episode. It depend you and you and Willie can tell me when you're ready to, to go on with martyrs and with the end here of chapter 20, because there's still, there's a lot more to the book of revelation. There's a lot more to eschatology as important as you know, getting the millennium right is, it's really, it's, it's one part of the whole. And so having some clarity about it, hopefully this episode has, has brought a little bit of clarity, um, but you also see that there's, there's more to the book, there's more to eschatology than just saying, do you believe in a literal thousand years or a figurative thousand years? <laughs> or do you want to just talk about it for an hour? Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Well, very good. Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you hear, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here with David Appold. God love you, and God bless. And yet the verse of the gospel will not be untrue. Who entereth into the house of the strong one to spoil his goods, unless he shall first have bound the strong one? For in accordance with this true saying, that order is observed. The strong one first bound, and then his goods spoiled. For the church is so increased by the weak and strong from all nations far and near, that by its most robust faith in things divinely predicted and accomplished, it shall be able to spoil the goods of even the unbound devil. St. Augustine, City of God.